Hi, and thank you for joining us today on The Food That Binds. I'm your host, Jennifer Zeman. Today's guest, Christian Lauterbach, really needs no introduction if you are a food lover in Atlanta, but I'll introduce her anyway because the bio she provided is too well written not to share. Christian Lauterbach was born in Paris where she grew up without a mother. A neglected child, she roamed the streets and markets of her native city and developed an intense curiosity for all delectable things. In her early 20s, she moved to Munich, then New York, and broadened her horizon. Traveling became her passion. As a mother of two now-adult daughters, she shared her love of unusual foods, intense gardening, and unconventional situations with a growing audience and became the dining critic for Atlanta Magazine, a position she holds faithfully to this day. Together with a group of friends and at least one husband, she founded Knife and Fork, the ultimate guide to Atlanta restaurants currently on pause after almost 40 years. As a member of the James Beard Award Committee, for almost 20 years, she has visited nearly every major city and many spots where the food defines daily life, as she likes to live it in anticipation of surprises, both gastronomical and cultural. I know I am certainly fascinated with her after reading that bio and welcome her to the show. Hi, Christiane. Thank you for being here. Jennifer, thank you. It's a pleasure being here in your beautiful house. (laughs) Thank you. It's lovely to actually be in person, too, after all this time and all these phone calls over the past year. But I appreciate you helping me launch this podcast. You know, I have so much respect for you as a person and as a journalist. Um, and I thought, who better to talk to you about food and relationships than, you know, the grand dame of food in Atlanta. Grand dame makes me sound so old. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Just to have the bad bitch, <laughs> the head bitch in charge. <laughs> what are those? But I wanted to talk to you just kind of like your origin story, if you will, um, you know, where you started loving food. Like if you had to remember a moment in your life that crystallized and you're like, oh, this is something I'm interested in. Um, When would that have been? I remember when I was like a really lonely child. I always tell people, watch François Truffaut, The 400 Blows, and you'll know how I grew up. So I grew up, I'm French, but I'm not the fancy French who wears silk, foulard, and all that. I grew up working class and lonely. And in Paris, food is everywhere. You cannot walk down the street without seeing it. Like in America, it's hard to even look at food. The windows are not like pulling you in. And for me, it was a desire to, a craving, just seeing things that were inconceivable to me. And I remember being very, very young, maybe seven or eight, and seeing Heart of Palm salad on the vitrine of a traitor. And I'm like, white food, that is weird. And I actually saved money. I don't know where I saved it from because clearly I did not have argent de poche to spend, but I bought a little container of Heart of Palm. And I remember all by myself, furtively tasting it. And my curiosity was satisfied and my pleasure was really triggered in a major way. So we have that word in French, faire du lèche vitrine, which is like licking the windows of stores. <laughs> since I didn't have any culture, any money, I would just wander around constantly looking at stuff, desiring stuff in uh, very acutely. So that's my origin story. And was there someone in your life who kind of fed that love of food, um, taught you how to cook, taught you your love of gardening? I don't know that she really taught me many things, but she had a profound influence on my life. Since my mother left when I was a baby, my grandmother helped my father raise me, and she was a countrywoman in a not very glamorous part of the near suburbs of Paris. She never had a refrigerator. She had an old-fashioned stove with like rings that you had to remove that was fired by coal, yet she had an intense personal delight in food. She was a widow and she would take me to the market and she would buy little lamb brains to make, you know, caper sauce with. She baked incredible things. I don't remember actually helping her. I don't remember her teaching me something. I don't know that I was even supposed to touch the stuff. She had a fabulous garden and the envy of the neighborhood, one of those long, narrow 
vegetable and flower garden, and I just did not want to touch anything. I would just sit there with a book, and once in a while I would just crush an ant with my foot so that other ants would come and I would crush them as well. But clearly it had a deep influence, and it just came later on in my biography or in the course of my life that I just loved those very things that I did not I loved her food. We were united in just despising people who used margarine or you used pressure cooker. It was like, oh my God. So I love, love that. She would take me to the baker around the corner. She did not really have a reliable oven and we would bring this like a meat pie to the baker who would just put it at the end of his shift. He would put things that people brought. So in a very old-fashioned way, it makes me sound as if I'd lived in the 18th century, but there was part of that. Would you say first, like, food is your first love, in a way? It was a profound comfort to me, a profound comfort to me to access food and also... You know, some people are addicted to the emotion of familiarity. And me, I am addicted to the emotion of surprise. So, so and it's, I didn't invent that. Some fancy German philosopher, they have so many, I wouldn't be able to tell you which one, but it is like that. Just like the emotion of surprise is primordial to who I feel as a, as a person. And because I had a very lonely childhood and I ton of freedom. Like my children have no idea of the kind of freedom I had. At the age of 10, I would just take a, a commuter train and the metro and I would wander around Paris. And Paris is an amazing playground. The stimulations were constant and that has really shaped me. There's nothing I like better than arriving in a place that I don't know, where I don't know anybody. And I just vagabond through the city trying to figure it out. And one of the keys to my discovery is the fact that I have absolutely no sense of, or I cannot orient myself. When oriented, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have no sense of direction. So oh, automatic. Really? That's so interesting. I am, the, I am the worst. I, can, I am too. That's funny. I still get lost in Atlanta yeah. after living here. So getting lost has given me many opportunities to recalibrate, recalculate, and just see. But I'm very responsive to the fact that people are gathering here rather than there. And the, the emotion of the street, the street life is super important to me. Why? Just, you know, some people are assholes and some people are creeps. <laughs> and I'm more of a creeper, somebody who just likes to watch things and get excited. But you're very the weirdest thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that's very, that's me very much. And I don't feel that I am a, a gourmand in the, oh, I have to stuff my face. It's not that. I have to satisfy my curiosity about the world. I have to explore my environment. And arriving in Atlanta from Munich, where I moved to get married for the first time, was incredibly shocking. I lived in New York for a while. And New York, Paris, I completely saw the similarity. It was easy. I love a grid city. You know exactly you're walking north or south. You know where you are. Atlanta felt like a wild, wild desert to me. And I live right by the Emory campus. Otherwise, I probably would have died. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because you could walk and have more interaction. Right. 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 Well, I mean, how did you start turning food into a profession. When was that? Was that in Munich? Was it in New York? Never in, never in Munich, New York, Paris. It happened in Atlanta. My husband, when my second husband, went to law school at Emory University. And part of the kit and caboodle for students was like a student orientation guide. And there were reviews in that guidebook for students. And I thought, gee, I could do that. I'm interested in food. I'm interested in writing. I, I can do that. And I think my husband and I worked together. Oh, he worked. You know, the word freelance did not exist at the time, but he freelanced for a little publication called Common Sense that was about how to save money, how to be a hippie or something like that. And they did ask him to do restaurant reviews. 
And it was like, at the beginning, it was more like an editorial bonbon. Anybody who wanted to say anything about food could do it. We started doing it together, kind of seriously. I was teaching French at the Alliance Francaise. I had babies, two in a row. And eventually, one of my students, uh, who is now, I think, like a dealer in fine jewelry, offered to introduce me to the staff at Atlanta Magazine. And boom, there it is. He was one of those dream students who bring the teacher red roses. You know, again, <laughs> stimulation is really, you is know. Is this before Knife and Fork or after? Before Knife and Fork. Before, Actually, oh, I didn't realize that Atlanta Magazine yes. came before uh, Knife and Fork. Yes. And, you know, the, the chronology is a little strange, but we were a group of friends, including Sue Kreitzman, who now hates me, <laughs> and Bill Cutler, who is now dead, and then our husbands, we all lost our gigs at the same time. And by, you know, we got addicted to going to restaurant. The social experience of going to restaurant is super important to me, or should be to anyone. I often describe going to a restaurant as renting an event space. Like when you grow up in Paris, where most people have small places, you don't you rarely invite your friend to your house. Hmm. You just go to a cafe and that whole thing. I never thought of it that way. That's so interesting. It's what's so missing at the moment. We lost that. And I'm still very puzzled by that. I remember an amazing conversation with Michel Richard, the owner of Citronelle, who was an immense, I mean, he was immense physically, very witty and whatnot. And, you know, people don't really understand the rapport between the food part and then the entertainment part. People ask him all the time, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And he say, you want a baked potato lady? Ooh, $85. <laughs> and I'm like, no. It's like, this is what it costs me to basically have you sitting on that chair. You enjoy the theater, the service, the light, the design, the location. You can meet there with your friend. You don't have to show them your offer house. <laughs> and I just really, it made a big impression on me, the $85. And he was being flippant, clearly. But this is what it is. For me, also going to a restaurant is like renting an event space. It's like a food Airbnb. You're there for a time. It feels like it, be, it belongs to you. You belong to it. And it's so important, much more so than to me, the, you know, the purity of food does not live easily in restaurants. So if I want extremely pure food, I'm going to pull a carrot out of the ground in my in my garden. <laughs> maybe I'll wash it. Maybe I'll just brush off the dirt. And, that's a carrot. But by the time you put cumin and um, pomegranate molasses and whatever on that carrot, is that still a carrot? I don't know about that. So like, what do you get emotionally from that experience in a restaurant? The, it doesn't seem so much about the exploration at that point when you're saying that, that that renting of the event space. What is the emotion that that provides you with? That's very interesting. Let me think a minute. It, it provides me, as I said, with an opportunity to be social. I'm not like super social. Uh, I don't know why. As I said, we can get back to the notion that maybe I'm some sort of a super queen. <laughs> but... <laughs> And, you know, one of the things that I, I think about a lot is how people express their like and dislike. And that seems silly to me. If you were an art critic and you say, yeah, you know, I don't really like Picasso, people would laugh you out of town. It is not. Liking something is maybe 10% of your evaluation of a particular place. Mm-hmm. To me, knowing how correct, how innovative, putting stuff in the real Context, like the taxonomy of restaurant is maybe more interesting to me than the pure experience of food. I've often, you know, again, being flippant, compared myself to Audubon, the bird dude, because it's like, oh, I have to experience every bird. I have to see every bird. I have to draw every bird. I'm the bird dude. So that is kind of my inner spring as well. (laughs) Just a composure. Yes. Mm -hmm. It still fulfills me. (laughs) How, what kind of, in your relationships with your children, with your husbands, with your friends, um, your adopted family, 
does food play a prominent role? Like, is it a love language for you to cook for someone or to be cooked for? Is it, I know that your daughter, um, Hillary, has been part of Knife and Fork for a while and really seems to, you know, adopted your love of exploration as well. What role has it played? Yeah, my daughter Hillary is actually a food critic in Athens, Georgia. It's not what we talk mostly about. Uh, cooking, I know how to cook. I can, you know, peel the membranes of uh, some weird organ meat. I can remove the skin from a green walnut. I could have been a great prep chef. I don't think that I would have been up to the stress of actual cooking. And I only like thing that takes either two minutes or three days. I'm into the <laughs> two minutes or three days <laughs> to say that I'm in the extreme. Yes. Like when some of my colleagues would visit me, I remember Victoria from Miami just saying, take me to some place. Either it has to be important or weird. And I feel it's still part of my repertoire. A restaurant is important or a restaurant is like extreme niche, like something that nobody else has done. So those are the emotion that I have in my professional life, uh, covering the middle ground, not that interesting to me, seeing what everybody else is doing again and again all across America. All those young chefs who think they're so special because they do this and that, they should travel more. <laughs> There's some other guy <laughs> out there just doing pretty much the same. Uh, I like the fact that at the very beginning, I was producing the information I was never reading anything about food. It was just my own discoveries. Those were the great, great days. And those great, great days are a little bit over. But to get back to my children, my children were an amazing crew to take with me to a restaurant as opposed to having to line up dates to go to a restaurant. <laughs> it's like getting babysitters. It's the worst. Yes. And, and you also like to eat alone today well, before covid before like covid yes. <laughs> before covid i like to because i knew the other possibility was just around the corner but during covid where i've spent so much time alone i just discover some yearning for social gatherings so knife and fork is on a hiatus right now after 40 years after 40 years which is crazy because like it's just such a mainstay. For me, it is. And when anybody ever hears that I write about food, one of the first things they ask me is if I know who Christian Lauterbach was and what is she like? And, you know, she's so amazing. How does that feel to have this thing that was really your own, you know, separate from anything you were doing with Atlanta Magazine or your role on the James Beard Restaurant Committee? It seems like it's such a part of who you are to me. But I have many parts and maybe some parts fall away. You know, you lose your hair, you lose your, your stuff. There is a way that the food culture is evolving that has been disturbing to me, even before COVID. Just I felt that needlessly, like I understand creativity, but it's not what I respond to mainly. How so? Like in the art world, I understand creativity. In the food world, not that I'm a traditionalist, but I can see people messing around with the beauty, the simplicity of ultimate dishes. I was listening to a podcast, because I love podcasts, <laughs> and I forgot who it is, but he goes to Italy a lot. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the fact that for him now being in Rome, like eating pasta in Rome is more boring than eating pasta in America. And I just felt like, yeah, I just wanted to scream because <laughs> I probably would like what he calls boring, not those needless, you know, a pinch of this, a pinch of that, spice, 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 spice. I'm, I'm really tired of that in so many ways. And then everybody, you know, discussing endlessly who has the right to represent, cook. Mm -hmm. cook whatever. This has become tedious to me. So whether I will get over that feeling of tediousness, but that, that's part of, I mean, definitely COVID and not being able to put restaurants like on, in a perfect context, but it's the evolution of the food scene that has really dismayed me. Was that what, before COVID happened? Just at the, you know, within weeks. Really? That, so so maybe, you feel that the, the pivots maybe have not been 
your uh, your favorite <laughs> in a way. I mean, can you explain more what you mean by that about the evolution in the weeks after COVID happened? Well, you know, very few people were interested in food. When I was interested in food, there were people who were like crazy cooks who just like to do that. But, you know, the A in Atlanta, the food wasn't all that interesting, clearly. And, you know, I felt like I was one of a, you know, one of a kind. And now I am still one of a kind, but I can see just the social media belaboring the smallest thing in a way that I, I cannot deal with. A, I'm not very visual. As you know, you're a very visual person. I've admired you also as a photographer. And just like, it is not who I am. I'm going to, you know, I'm in some crazy corner, nobody's there, and I eat something that looks like a bucket of mud, and I've never tasted it before. Wow, this is like a, a fantastic experience for me. And I think it's going in a different direction. People taking selfies of themselves with food. And even the incredible multiplication. Everybody writes about just the most mundane food, whatever, the Cheetos of my childhood. That's kind of not very interesting to me. So I'm responding to that. I have watched it evolve with social media and now seeing influencers on Instagram. I mean, to me, it's weird because like, I'm just not the kind of person, even though I'm doing a podcast, that's going to be like taking selfies of myself eating something for a reaction shot. I I wonder, is there a place for us anymore as, as people that are curators of good food? I do think there is, but what do you think? I'm a little concerned about it, Jennifer. <laughs> and, you know, I respect the fact that you were the first blogger I ever heard of. You were the first person whose food photography seemed desirable to me. So much food photography is repulsive to me. Like, ugh, so many cookbooks have pictures. I, I just look at it and I'm like, ugh, ugh, how, how terrible. But what I am is an opinion journalist. I want to be able to you know, promote my opinion as something that is based in experience, reality. And the way I interact with much younger people is encouraging to me because they, you know, clearly want to learn, but they don't even understand that their opinion doesn't really really matter. And I want my opinion to still matter. Some of the conversations I have but like I've seen everything blown away, like the James Beard Restaurant Awards Committee pff, dissolved in, in some absolute nonsense, like a fury of gatekeeping. Who can say what more? Like I will have to say, and people can jump on me. I don't care. But one of the food that was the most important to me when I arrived in Atlanta was soul food. Again, this primary emotion of curiosity. Pff, there was something that I had never even conceived of. And I loved it. I adored it. I remember being at Pascal's and eating chicken liver omelette. It's like, oh, how weird. I remember the uniform of the staff. And I understood the importance of it to the civil movement. So why could I not actually have valid opinion about black food? Just that, that again, puzzled me greatly. I understand that people want their own representation out of their own culture or in their own culture. Completely understand that. But even the soul food is evolving in a way that is more theatrics than real pleasure, deliciousness, and again, all of that. And it comes at great expense. So now we get less and it's more expensive. It's like, eh, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. But I see what you're saying though. I mean, there's been a lot of talk for, for listeners who don't follow like the inner workings of food media, but who can write about certain cuisines. And like for someone like me, I'm a true mutt. I mean, I am Mexican, Jewish, Polish, Iberian. And so what, what can I write about? Like what percentage counts? For me, my writing has always been from curiosity, just like you. And I'm a food anthropologist in a way. I mean, that's how I love learning. And it's really the most direct way to learn about a culture. As you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But I do wonder just where we're going today. 
I don't know what the world will look like post-COVID. I mean, you and I have talked a lot over the past year and in all different ways about the industry and food. But I mean, has your relationship with food changed in the past year? I just watch commercial interest being so prevalent. I mean, yeah, people have to make a living. I understand that. But the way people, the way the real estate situation, it also drives so many people away from you know, pursuing a, a career. So you said that you're not good at predicting the future. Can you expand upon that? A long, long time ago, Alex Kennedy, who was then the, the fashion editor for Atlanta Magazine, opened Partners in Morningside and then uh, Indigo Grill, and it was really such a big thing. And because we had a relationship because of the magazine, not because of the restaurant, and she told me, I'm thinking of opening like a little restaurant in Decatur. What do you think of that? And like, Decatur, nobody will ever go to Decatur <laughs> to dine or not. So this is as good as it gets, telling you that I'm not good at predicting the future. So the post-pandemic world is a big mystery to me, and I'm waiting for it to reveal itself in all its glory, but it hasn't happened. I feel safe because I'm vaccinated, but as long as everybody is not safe, it's going to be weird. So are you still reviewing restaurants for Atlanta Magazine in a way? We I'm doing my Christian Chronicles where I just talk about whatever I want to talk about. And I'm very happy that the magazine supports me in doing that. You've been with them 40 years? 40 years. Wow. Yes. So not, maybe not quite or maybe more. Roughly. Nobody's judging. <laughs> Nobody's judging. And I have to say, I've been very faithful delightfully faithful to Atlanta Magazine. I believe that a city deserves just a voice that really represents the city. And I felt for some reason that I was that, and I'm still that. As far as weighted reviews are concerned, I just had a wonderful talk with my new editor, Sam Worley, who is super smart, super hip. And there are a couple of places that I could do, but... What after that? Like if I publish one rated review mm. and then there is nothing else that we can really rate review as being, you know, important, meaningful. So we're still on hold as far as main review, but I've been able to express myself, which is what I want to do. And in a way that is meaningful to the city that teaches people what to do, where to go. But we have to have a sense of the future. And I don't think that has happened yet. Mm -hmm. Do you think that knife and fork will remain on hiatus? Again, I'm not good at predicting the future, <laughs> but I know that for every ounce of creative work, there is a pound of blah, yeah. going to the printer, going to leaking envelopes. I, I just, I don't know that I'm still feeling that grueling world <laughs> work. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with Christian Lauterbach, dining critic for Atlanta Magazine and editor of Knife and Fork. So you and I have talked a lot offline about how we feel about going to restaurants today. And both of us are not really ready um, or we've said so. I'm, I'm going to try and dip my toe into outdoor dining this weekend. How are you interacting with restaurants? How have you? Have you done takeout over the past year or just for yourself? What are you doing today? I have not done takeout for myself at all because basically I despise takeout. It's never as good. There's a, a taste of the box stuff. When my children were little, we didn't even do takeout pizza or whatnot. This is, I like the immediacy of the food. So takeout has never been my jam. I've done some furtive dining either outside of a restaurant or grabbing the stuff and taking a first bite <laughs> in my car or on the bench. But by the time you're home, it's kind of dead. I mean, the idea that anybody could enjoy a cheeseburger that has traveled in a box for a while, maybe a fast food does improve by being soggy, but the rest of the stuff, not at all interesting. So I have done some capsules that we publish in Atlanta Magazine, and I have been able to evaluate, you know, a little bit, but so much is missing from that kind of opinion piece. So that's how I've interacted with food. But on my own, for myself, 
have I eaten any food from a takeout box? Not really. So do you, is it because you don't feel comfortable um, oh, no. like taking food? You're just not a... It just doesn't taste good. It, it just taste doesn't good. taste good. I love my own leftovers. Yes. Uh, my children consider me the queen of leftovers. I can combine things. Like we are really good at that. But restaurant leftovers, I always let the person I was with take the leftovers. Or if I took them, I would give them to the people, the lovely people at Video Drome, Video <laughs> Store, whatever. But I myself despise restaurant food that has been sitting around just not good. If you are not ready to go eat inside of a restaurant and you are a restaurant critic, how can you continue to write about food? Not just you, but anyone. I am not ready to go inside of a restaurant yet. I'm not sure when I will be, even though I am vaccinated or something. I think I was discussing yesterday how if I'm going to a restaurant, I'm going for the hospitality. And really at this point in my life, because I'm a good cook, I can cook for myself. I don't mind getting takeout from a restaurant, especially if it's like Chinese or whatever that travels well. But in hospitality, there is an aspect of contact, right? And how do you do contact-free hospitality? How are you taking care of? I, I don't know. Well, I had a wonderful not reviewing meal, but inside a restaurant experience. I treated myself to oysters at Kimball House. It felt right. Um, the diner, the diner, meaning myself, it was not many people around, were separated from the bartenders by plexiglass shield. I was already vaccinated at that point, and I felt comfortable. Though... Other restaurants have made me feel... I have gone inside of a barbecue place in Tucker in order to grab my box. And oh, yeah, whatnot. I do that too. And I see people who are, you know, living as if nothing had ever happened. And that makes me feel totally weird. So the sense is of weirdness. So I've started writing a couple of like mood pieces for Atlanta Magazine. Again, very grateful that they let me go on about my emotions mm -hmm. and what has happened to me and why the deliciousness of things, which is so important to me, has sort of gone away. I've hardly eaten anything now about anything that would have been better than before. Okay, that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for better than before. Like the not as good as before, eh, not that interesting to me. So do you I think it's because you're missing that, like you said, you used to love going to restaurants because it was like renting the space and having that community and that it, if that's missing for you, does it make it less delicious? Absolutely. Absolutely, Jennifer. You put, boom, you hit the nail right on the proverbial head. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's sad though, because I was like joking like the coffee talk from SNL back in the day on, on one of my socials, I was like, I'm a restaurant critic who doesn't eat in restaurants. Discuss, you know, <laughs> it's a really weird thing. I don't, I don't know if it's because I have trained myself to be scared of people over the past year or just all of the different things that we've done, not, not knowing if it was transferring with the surfaces at first or if it could be ingested and all the things. I feel like I really locked it down and. I don't know if it's just that I'm broken inside and too much and not very much of a risk taker or if it's just something temporary. Um, and I think it will be temporary. I just felt at the beginning it was like a, a new thing, therefore interesting, like staying alive, project staying alive. <laughs> and now I did stay alive. I never got infected. Uh, and now what's the next project? I don't know because I cannot predict the future. But something, I mean, do you, I'm just trying to, there's just, do you fear restaurants now? No. No. Do you fear food at all now? No. Did you feel fearful of restaurants and food over the past year? At the beginning, absolutely. Yeah. But now do you think it's because you have more knowledge that you don't? Absolutely. Yeah. It's fact-based. I mean, it's and just so weird that we've all gone through the same kind of thing in the past year. Like this, like, it's just every everyone, it was like control-alt-delete. I keep using that phrase, but it really was a control-alt-delete. And, and, so, and, and, and for the food industry as well. You know, I'm not sure that they still know what they're doing. Um. <laughs> well, they do a lot of, you know, whatever. Now we clean the planes. 
do I believe a lot of the information? No, I live in some sort of a fog and it's no longer a pleasant fog that allowed me to isolate. Now it's a worrisome kind of toxic fog and things have, you know, either not changed enough or changed too much. I can't decide <laughs> to give me some time. Well, I think we're all going through the same thing. But just in terms of your relationship with food, you just wrote a beautiful article about Chef David Sweeney. He used to have the restaurant Dynamic Dish, which is actually the first time we ever sat down and ate accidentally. So I almost like, in, you know, just like forced myself upon you that day. But I mean, he's you said that he has really changed your relationship with food. Can you talk more about that? I feel he has such a drive for purity is able to crystallize what is important about a dish or an ingredient. And in that, he reminds me of chef Gunther Seger, who was and will probably remain the best chef we ever had. This intense purity, this crazy focus on not, you know, never acting to gild the lily or make more money. Those chefs are true pure souls and artists, and I worship everything they do. So he has helped me to get back to, you know, purity. What is purity? Like lying naked in bed and eating white yogurt? Yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> but you do that, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind, of, kind of purity. But they have a respect for ingredients that I really don't see in many restaurants. I see many glorification of like external things, weirdo technique, and it's supposed to be, wow, revolutionary. As I said, the the incredible reliance on spice and sauces, and it's just like not that interesting to me. I come from a culture that spice is like, oh yeah, a bit of salt, a bit of pepper, oh, that's good. (laughs) It may be boring, but to me it is not boring. Because it's ingredient-driven. More in American chefs said they are ingredient driven, blah, blah, blah. But really, as I said, sometimes the purity verges on austerity. Mm. Some people may call it boring. I don't find it boring at all. So, do you like Dan Barber as a chef? I do. And to me, eating at Blue Hill in the Hudson Valley was an incredible experience. But of course, not everybody has a Rockefeller budget and the ability to do something like that. So, there are places in Atlanta that could function like a blue hill in the Hudson Valley, but there is not a soul behind it that is going to be supporting that, the plant breeding, the, and also it costs a lot of money to the consumer. You, what about Serenby and Nicholas? Well, Serenby has definitely the geography and the resources perhaps to do it. And I, I love Nick. I, I'm really happy that he's there, you know, doing his thing. Have I eaten his Current food? No. No, so, I have not either. Yeah, no. but I'm very, I'm very happy for him. I liked him as a chef in East Atlanta. He was a pioneer. Did he have mid city cuisine? No, 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 no. He worked there for a little. But he did work there for and a little. And then he went. Iris was his restaurant, which was, you know, and he did some simple thing. Like he does a very simple duck coffee. He's and a I very European chef. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes. I'm actually. I'm sure he was shocked because I asked him, how French exactly are you? <laughs> I was giving him like the DNA test. And it turns out yeah, he's more French than not French in many ways. And again, he can be a simple guy, which I like. As I said, simplicity is really beautiful in its own way. Where complication is like, yeah, you know, whatever. You Like you can do art by squeezing a lot of tube on the same canvas. And is that that it really not that interesting to me? While the old Flemish masters, that's more interesting. A splatter on a canvas and not a Jackson Pollock make kind of thing, yes. But so speaking, just going back to Dan Barber, I just read something about him, you know, talking about how we were going to be post-COVID. And he, in his take was kind of interesting. He was like, I think the idea that we're going to be doing anything is preposterous because there's a recession coming. <laughs> so I don't even know. If I don't think we're going to go back to normal, I don't think there's a new normal. I don't know what restaurants look like. I mean, if you and I don't know, I don't know. 
does, who is you know? Yeah, Meanwhile, people eat slutty vegan burgers mm-hmm. and chicken wings and go on about their life. So maybe we don't really, have, and I no longer have that national perspective that I used to enjoy because of the James Beard Committee. We travel to every major city in America, some minor cities as well. We went to Puerto Rico. We had a perspective of what happened across the nation. We are able to see you know, good practices, good design, good management, and then it all fell apart. Can A you lot... tell people what happened? Because some people don't know. Well, you know, I think that the committee is still alive, though inactive. Uh, the colleague who replaced me on the committee, Hannah Raskin, is a very good journalist. And you know, there's definitely some good people there. But I can't really get into it because I was already gone from the committee when the whole thing just blew up. I mean, to me, it was such a New York-based committee when it moved to Chicago for the award. There were a lot of weird things that were also not that interested to me. And a lot of, as again, gatekeeping, you know, fighting, uh, accusation. I just can't do that. I can't cover that. I'm not interested in that. And that's something you've said to me, which I kind of respect when you say that you're not a gatekeeper. No. If a Honduran chef wants to do Malaysian food and has a passion for it, go for it. Absolutely no problem with that. I don't think that black chefs should be limited to representing black food. I think black chefs should do whatever the hell they feel passionate about, comfortable doing, and very pretentiously, perhaps, I would have to say, I know a lot about soul food, about Gichi food, but I feel that I should be able to voice an opinion on what is and isn't good. So comparing thing is really the way I operate. I feel I have a special equipment. Let me explain that. I could never have been a wine critic or kind of any liquid form, (laughs) except I'm very good about the taste of water. I just don't have the amazing memory. For me, my mind, my body, it's like a giant housing for a database. Every tomato I've ever tasted gets compared to every tomato I'm eating from this day forward. And this is not a young person's game. You accumulate experiences that... Yeah, like you, you met somebody say, oh, I really like my tomatoes, kind of pink and hard, and you just look at them and say, well, obviously, honey, you have not eaten enough tomatoes. So I have eaten enough tomatoes, and I've been able to memorize all the subtle differences while I've drunk a bottle of wine that costs over $1,000, and I have loved the lovely guests to have made it <laughs> possible for me. But would I be able to be a, a sommelier or write about wine all day? Ooh, it tastes like apricot mixed with, uh, I don't know what, <laughs> some funk out of the butt of some... I just, I do not feel that. I cannot interna- internalize, I cannot memorize such differences. So the physical equipment is there for me to review food, to accumulate knowledge, while it isn't there about many, many other things, that comparison, that long time, I can only do it with food, but I know I can do it well. I don't have perfect pitch. I cannot sing. I will spare you my singing, but I have some kind of version of perfect pitch when it comes to food and ability to memorize. Well, I could not tell you this is an 86 or this is an 82. I don't have that. I don't have the equipment. I probably don't have the- Those are parlor tricks to me. <laughs> the whole wine. Oh, let me you know, My dad been... can do that. He's like the really good at the wine, but I, I cannot. I am not a wine person. I like good wine. So one thing that we haven't addressed that I want to talk about briefly is how ungrateful Atlanta is as a city. So many people have started in Atlanta and moved on to greater glory in other cities, like Chocolatier Jacques Torres started in Atlanta. And so many people of the same caliber and then got out of Dodge and got famous after that, I feel Atlanta is an ungrateful city. So to Gunter Seeger, I mean, many, many. Colicchio was here and should have stayed. I loved that restaurant. But he didn't start. He didn't right. start he here. He didn't start here. But, but we, like, we don't grow a homegrown talent to, you know, 
the point where they can be happy, making a living. So maybe there is a young generation that is doing that, but it's also young is a little bit problematic in the sense that there is no inspirational figure. There is not like a great teacher in Atlanta. I feel that. Uh, and clearly, this is a problem that we have to solve. People achieve a certain level of proficiency, and then they, have, they say, well, I've made it. I'm, I'm just a, a great person. I will keep spinning other vaguely related restaurants. That's not super interesting to me. So like in that, something I was thinking about um, at the turn of the year when like Eater came to me for one of those like prediction headlines, whatever, which I'm really bad at as well. But something we had discussed was the balance of power between restaurateur and diner. I feel like before COVID, you're here, follow our rules. You know, if you don't like it, get out. Or like, for instance, like Rayo's in New York forever, you couldn't get a reservation. All of a sudden you can get it delivered to you at your house. Or here we had certain restaurants that were completely like talk-based systems and it was a lottery. I feel like it's flip-flopped and now restaurateurs have to cater to us more. They haven't really started. I mean, I would have to say that the age of inconvenience is upon us. And I understand why people decided that Wednesday is the new Monday. My brain doesn't have enough cell to remember when you want to be open, why you don't work really hard. I mean, a simple business model, 7-11, you knew it was open from 7 to 11. <laughs> right. I like, again, simplicity. People may look at me and not the word simplicity doesn't immediately jump when you are describing my love of life. But there is something about the age of inconvenience. Like, I, I can't, I cannot deal with that. And I think we're still kind of in the middle like of that. Like that we're being inconvenienced oh, by chefs. Yeah. The more inconvenient, the best. Like really, the I understand the importance of pop-ups, but the idea that I would have to pay twice as much in order to be outside someplace where I couldn't pee or wash my hands and it would be worth it. You know, it may be worth it to some people, but even I, a thrill seeker, I'm not interested in. So do you think then the relationship between restaurateur and, and its employees um, is semi-responsible for the lack of homegrown talent in Atlanta? I do feel like in terms of balance of power, again, that we're being asked to provide these people with a working wage because they don't. For instance, like in France, a waiter gets a salary. And here, I mean, most of the time, doesn't it? I mean, it didn't it used to be. Well, it didn't used to be? No, it used to be that you actually, to be a waiter at a really incredibly popular place, you literally had to pay to be there. You definitely did not get a minimum or whatnot. Mm. It was strictly tip-based. So how it has evolved, I don't really know for sure. I mean, I know as a European, the no tip or only just like one little symbolic little, like in Barcelona, you leave just like one little coin. coin yeah. And that is kind of, kind of great. But in the general, you know, mist of drive, a capitalistic drive for more, more, more expensive. I just, I don't know what's the end point of that. And I know people should not be limited to doing cheap restaurants, but boy, is that good to find something that feels cheap and good is a category that is not disparaged in so many ways. But cheap and good, let me tell you people, it's good. It feels good. Just to wrap things up, as we look towards the future, um, what is your relationship with restaurants like today? And do you think that you're going to start reviewing more? I'm really looking forward to a world without, you know, loneliness, anxiety. But basically, I want to be blown away by something that I haven't experienced before. I recently went to a house restaurant in Clarkston where a Burmese family cooks those amazing dishes Six dollars a dish, wow. like a full entree, sometimes with a clear broth on the side. You can have four amazing dishes for twenty-four dollars. So that brought me joy. That was something that really was missing from my life. So I still have the love of surprise, the love of a well-done restaurant. As a French person, 
you don't focus on oh, I like this, I like that. Is that correct? Is that innovative? Is that and yes, restaurants are still worth my while, but many, many restaurants are not and will not be part of my life. And do you think that you will just be more careful in selecting where you do dine? I'm not a very careful person. <laughs> I'm the kind of person that jumps with two feet outside of a window. I'm not a careful, I'm very spontaneous. I don't plan things. I was never the kind of person who was doing research beforehand, making reservations. I'm definitely more weird, more spontaneous than that. So as I say, I'm looking forward to surprises, delicious, delicious, well worth experiencing surprises. That's what I want. And maybe it's around the corner, Jennifer. <laughs> Let's hope so. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or to let listeners know where they can find you? I would really like for people to find me on Twitter, where I'm at Christian Chronicles. And I'm not trying to be funny, but sometimes I am. I am gingerly getting into giving recommendation, which I used to keep my secrets just like the close to my chest. I just wanted to be the one and only. <laughs> so now I'm more likely to share experiences and to be, as usual, unconventional. <laughs> and I have a love of good food, cheap food, surprising food, and you can see that. And also I have opinions about all sorts of things. You can find that on my Twitter feed. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Christiane. It was so good to talk to you, Jennifer, and to see you smile in person. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. That wraps up this episode of The Food That Binds. Thank you for listening, and thank you so much to Christiane Lauterbach for joining us. If you want to keep up with her latest work, visit atlantamagazine.com, Knife and Fork, or find her on Twitter as Christiane Chronicles. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me at Jennifer Zeman on Instagram and Twitter. We're back for another episode on Wednesday, discussing food halls and the post-COVID relationship between diner and restaurateur with George Banks. George has been both a principal consultant in the creation and operation of notable destination retail projects, including the Atlanta Dairies and Crog Street Market, which was the first food hall in the Southeast. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds.